Stay tuned for Corporations and Democracy coming up in just a moment. First you told us only through you could we know God and if we dared to question he wouldn't spare the rod. For you we worked the soil, for you we dug the moors, for you we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars. Now you try to tell us there's nothing we can do. You say the world around us belongs fairly to the few, but about six billion people no doubt will agree this world is our home, not your property. It's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would enclose the land all around the earth, our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. With our sweat we built the railroads, built cities on these shores. But because you own the money, you see that it's all yours. We laid the phone lines and the pipelines and then right before our eyes, you see these things are taxes paid for. You now will privatize. Privatize the hospitals, privatize the schools, privatize the prisons for all those who break your rules and preparing for the day. When all the wells run dry, you say you own the very rain that falls down from the sky, but it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who'd own the water all around the earth, our future is your downfall, only cut this ball and shame. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. You claim to own the harvest with your terminator seeds. You claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds. The opinions expressed on corporations and democracy are those of our guests and the hosts, and not necessarily of the management of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. Good afternoon, and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for January 14th, 2021. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Scalmanini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today's program will be in two sections. First, we'll look at election integrity of the historic runoff elections last week for both U.S. Senators in Georgia. And we'll include uh, looking at the massive voter suppression that was intended. And in the second half of the program, we'll look at some of the characters chosen by President-elect Biden for his cabinet and prospects for some of the issues that we discuss here on the program series. So let's begin with election integrity and voter suppression in last week's runoff elections. That's was for both U.S. Senators in Georgia. That was Tuesday last week. Republicans have openly declared that they cannot win an election anymore without suppressing the Democratic vote. The bigger the turnout, the more progressive the votes tend to be. So voter suppression has become a predictable scam. And there are a lot of ways to do it. Gerrymandering, closing down polling places, for example. But one quick way to get rid of Democrats is to just knock them off the voter rolls. Fortunately... We do have some anti-suppression warriors at work on this, like Stacey Abrams and her organization in Georgia called Fair Fight. And our guest today, Greg Pallast, intrepid investigative reporter for the BBC, The Guardian, and Rolling Stone. Greg has been fighting Jim Crow voting practices for 20 years since he identified and exposed the fraud in the 2000 presidential election in Florida that gave us a president named Bush instead of Gore. Since then, he's exposed other schemes that Republicans have used to suppress the vote in particular states, including the infamous interstate cross-check scam. Greg has just returned from Georgia, where he confronted the Secretary of State's office to reinstate 
198,000 illegally removed voters. So let's look at election integrity and voter suppression in the runoffs in Georgia just last week. Greg Pallast, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Glad to be with you. Yeah, I want to double thank you because I know you had a lot of things to juggle on your schedule today. So thank you so much for fitting us in. It is so appreciated. Um, there's a, so, so much going on right now. We're calling this, what, the post-riot show, Steve? Uh -huh. <laughs> We're not going to cover the riot. Well, well, we might actually get on to that a little bit because uh, Greg is involved right. in just about everything. But um, yeah. <laughs> just to begin it's with... All connected. It's all connected. It's, Believe me. It, it is, isn't it? In fact, um, in, in fact, I'll start out with that connection just so you see the difference. When I was, so the Palace investigative team, if you go to gregpalace.com, you can see these reports uh, for Democracy Now! and uh, for the Guardian newspapers. And um, I was in Georgia with my team for a couple of months, for the, for the two months of the runoff. And um, interestingly, a guy named Ali Alexander... Um, now, this is the guy who is roundly, you know, roundly targeted as the man who provoked the riot in the Capitol. He led the march from the Trump rally. It was, by the way, it was an illegal march. There was no permit. There were no cops. There were no marshals. There, was no, there were no signs. There was no nothing. And, and that's one of the reasons it ran out of control. This guy, Ali, knowing that there was no, uh, no uh, permit... Uh, led all these thousands of people to the Capitol. What do you think is going to happen when people are enraged? Some of them are armed, and there's absolutely no control. The police were not notified of this march at all, just so you know. In fact, it wasn't announced until, uh, until Trump, at 12.15 from the state, says, we're going to march. Now, you have to understand, the organizers of the march, called uh, Women for uh, America First, uh, they're big Trump supporters, but they were not. They did not want to allow anyone to march to the Capitol. They knew it would be mayhem because they promised the Metro Police. They promised the police there will be no march. But then Trump said, we're marching. And they, that's the first time they heard about the march. I kid you not. And this was led by this guy, Ali Alexander, who's a, a... Trump is a super fan of his. It's mutual. The problem is the guy is violent. When I was in Georgia, he was in Georgia. Oh. And he was threatening to burn down, burn down the governor's mansion and maybe take that same thought to Washington, D.C. If you go to gregpalace.com, you'll see this guy standing next to a character named Alex Jones. Oh, yes. And Alex Jones, he starts screaming, unless they name Trump president, the winner of the election, we are going to life this whole, and I can't say the word, thing on fire. So we're going to light this on fire. He's talking about the, the government buildings. Mm -hmm. So he's got his big chance in Washington, D.C. So now you'd say, well, so Trump's listening to him, and because Trump listened to him and decided to go out on a march, which he called, you ended up with mayhem. But i got to tell you, it's not just Trump, because, you know, we all know that, that he's uh, out of control, and that's why he's being impeached, why he's been impeached again. But... When Ali Alexander, this violent, threatening guy, out of control, was in Georgia, he was there because he was being sponsored by the Georgia Republican Party and the National Republican Senate Committee. 
Interesting. The two big official Georgia organizations had teamed up with this grifter, and and I'll explain why I call him a grifter in a minute, teamed up with this grifter to put him in charge, make him the keynote speaker at their rally gathering for Get Out the Vote. So they were using this alt-right nutcase, who has, by the way, a gigantic following. They're using his following to get in his ultra-right-wing, mostly racist, white supremacist followers to um, to be the get-out-the-vote volunteers for the Georgia Senate campaign runoff. You like that? So there's a connection between Georgia and the Republican Party and the mayhem in the Capitol. So we have the you have connected the Republican uh, Party officially directly to this. Officially. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And as far as I know, you broke that, did you not? To mayhem, right. Go ahead. You broke that news, did you not? Because I didn't see any, anything else yes. in the last week. Yes. If you go to gregpalace.com, you'll mm-hmm. see a two-minute film okay. uh, with Ali Rodriguez um, threatening to light this whole blank on fire. Now, understand that the Republicans hired um, um, Ali Alexander uh, after after we reported on his violent Oh. Uh, wow. pronouncements. Mm-hmm. So they knew who they were getting. Plus, if you go on the net, you'll find tons of stuff on this guy. And this is who the Republicans had officially teamed up with, and whom the President of the United States is taking direction from. That should be an impeachable offense, but we know what, what happens. Mm-hmm. Again, and one thing we I actually haven't announced, I'm really, it's just, I'm breaking news on your show that we found out that there was no permit for the march. Right, right. that's also... knew it. The White House knew it. And the problem of having no permit is that the park police and the metro police, remember the Congress and the ellipse where the Washington Monument is, those Mm -hmm. are National Park Service property. Mm -hmm. So the Park Service police are not told, the Metro police are not told, the Capitol police are not told that guess what thousands of people who are angry and armed are going to be marching down on the Capitol. Well, as one of the organizers who said, who's very, by the way, friendly, very friendly personally with Trump, said, well, what do you think is going to happen when you just let these thousands of people loose and no one's prepared? This is not, you know, it's not a stretch to, to imagine what would happen next. Mm-hmm. We're lucky it wasn't worse. But again, our president went along with this guy, Ali Alexander. Um, and by the way, I, I call him Ali Alexander. That's what he calls himself lately. Before he was, he called himself Ali Akbar, but he was convicted of some felony counts, so we decided he should change his name. And, and he, and phenotype, I mean, he appears to be a person of color, too, on top of all of this, which is a little yeah. disturbing. Yeah. Well, it's a little strange, but i got to tell you two things. Number one, I mean, ironically, it's one of, one of the, and a bit of a sign of, of the maturity of the uh, black uh, population that you're going to expect, as people get more engaged, that some people are going to go off, uh, off the, the ranch. But in Ali Akbar, Ali Alexander, whatever he's calling himself today, there might be another motive. He is not, his organization is stopthesteal.us, stop the steal, you know, Trump's, which is Trump's big line that he got from Roger Stone. By the way, this guy is a Roger Stone protege. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. You can well imagine. But the thing is, Okay, he's been gathering, we don't know how much. I would say it could be a couple million dollars. I don't know. It's, uh, it's looking at, he has 200,000 followers. If each of them gave him 10 bucks, and I, that's not um, a stretch, that's a couple million bucks. 
he is this org- his organization is not registered anywhere. It's not a, it's with the IRS, not a five hundred one c three or c four. And he's taking donations in cryptocurrency, and he refuses to say where the money, how much money he's gotten, or where it's gone. Now, uh, in the old days, if you had an organization that didn't register with the IRS, you were taking invisible money like cryptocurrency. Uh, you'd be spending uh, breaking rocks on a chain gang. Mm-hmm. So maybe Ali isn't into it because, you know, um, for, I don't know, for sincere political reasons, he's sure making an awful lot of money, though, playing the game. So maybe that's the con. I don't know whether he believes it or not. Um, taking this money invisibly and paying, you know, as far as I know, he's paying no taxes on it. He gave a big, sound like a drunken speech on, uh, I'm not showing anyone receipt. Um, so, you know, you know, this is this guy's, uh, and plus he instigated, provoked the riot. So I think that now he's a criminal. Okay. And that's where our president is taking directions from. Okay, thank you for that. Now, we're, we're almost out of time with you because I know you have oh. a busy schedule, but uh, we do want to talk about Georgia and the yes. massive amount of, of voter suppression and, and the Democrats won anyway. So what, is, what do yes. you have to well, say about that? Number one, the good news is, and I'm not telling you whether it's good or bad to vote for Democrats, but the good news is, is that it was the voters who chose the Senate and not the Jim Crow tax, but there were plenty. It wasn't close. It wasn't close for Biden or for the Senate campaign, uh, also for Warnock, um, because the state of Georgia has removed illegally, illegally, 198,000 voters from the voter rolls before the general and runoff election. I want to repeat that. 198,351 voters were removed, by the way, on the grounds that they left Georgia or left Atlanta. They left their counties. Mm-hmm. Well, we checked, and they were still there, one after another. Uh, Ishtar Diaz, Ashley Jones, Raheem Shabazz, and uh, tragically, in fact, <laughs> we got her on the Daily Show, is Martin Luther King's 94-year-old cousin, Christine Jordan. She was going to vote for the 50th year in a row, and they said, you, you can't vote here anymore, because they said she'd left. Well, she'd been in the same house. I know, because I went to the house she supposedly left her, mm-hmm. King's picture on the wall, having dinner with her at that house. So she had to be there at least 60 years. And um, that's who they're removing the voter rolls, overwhelmingly voters of color and young people. In other words, Democrats. 198,000 of them. Now, a federal judge, uh, We uh, so when I issued this report, by the way, you can see that again at greatpalace.com, I did it for the ACLU. Of Georgia, um, the they, the state still you know there's this guy Secretary of State that's being played as a hero. This guy Brad Raffensperger, mm-hmm. he's being played as some type of hero because he stood up to Trump. He didn't stand up to Trump. He just couldn't steal enough votes to make Trump happy. He couldn't swing the state. You can't steal all the votes all the time without literally going to prison. He wasn't going to do that, but he was stealing votes. Believe me, 198,000 votes, Mister Trump. That's not enough for you. Because you got, because you lost, you lost by over two hundred thousand votes, and they tried to steal as many as they could. So he uh, refused to put these people back on. He was sued by Black Voters Matter, uh, Rainbow Push, and Voto Latino, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, the federal judge said you got to sit down and straighten out these voter lists. Of course, he just kept literally, literally running away from us. You'll see a film uh, <laughs> on the program Democracy Now! that I did. But again, all these films are at gregpalace.com. Mm-hmm. 
where he's literally, we go to talk about return the voters to the voter rolls. Me, and Latasha Brown of Black Voters Matter, and, and the attorneys for Reverend uh, Jesse Jackson. Uh, and uh, we, we go up to his office. He locks the door. And understand, this is in the state capitol, mm-hmm. across from the governor's office. Secretary of State locks his door, turns out the lights, snaps the blinds shut. He's hiding from us. I mean, it's crazy just to avoid having to give these voters, like Martin Luther King's cousin, their right to vote. Mm-hmm. Yet, he still couldn't steal enough votes to steal the presidency or to steal the, uh, the Senate races. And this is 198,000 people. They still don't have their right to vote? Well, we got about 40,000 back on All because right. we ran a campaign. Uh-huh. Uh, Rosario Dawson did some PSAs for us, and then in Spanish by Zoe Saldana, uh, saying, better check your registration. We tell it to everyone, including in California. Don't assume you're registered. Just because you voted last time is all okay. These scoundrels called secretaries of state tend to just flush people out off the voter rolls they don't like. And by the way, the Democrats do that in California, big time. Uh-huh. Uh, but the Republicans do it in Georgia. And uh, they're very good at picking out voters of color, including, by the way, in California. And um, so, yeah, so we got about 40000 back on with because we ran this big campaign. Check your registration in time before you go and vote. Um, you know, in California, it's not such a problem right now because you can register on the day of the election. I don't know if many people know that, but starting uh, this year, you've been able to um, register on election day. So if you're missing, you can re-register. But in Georgia, you can't. But we got a lot of people back on. Black Voters Matter uh, sent out 98,000 postcards saying, you better re-register. Um, the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, SV Rep, which is a big frontline Hispanic organization out of California and Texas, called 40,000 people. So we got a lot of people re-registered, enough that it probably made the difference for Ossoff winning. Now, it is not my job to elect Mr. Ossoff as a senator, but it is my job to let the voters make that choice, not the scoundrel Republican Secretary of State who somehow has been called a hero by MSNBC mm-hmm. you know, and, and the New York Times. Just because you stand up to Trump, because you have to, because Trump literally threatened him. He was, he was facing death threats from Trump's people. He had no choice but to blow the whistle because... You was going to oh, die. That's what it was. But okay. just because you're targeted by Trump does not make you a wonderful guy. This guy is a is an absolute Jim Crow racist Republican Party hack of the worst order. And I say that uh, that's an objective statement. It's not a partisan statement. <laughs> it's years. It's seven years of investigation for Rolling Stone and Democracy Now in uh, Georgia. So voter suppression is definitely the name of the game from now on. And you uncovered yep. another really interesting uh, quirk. They had decided that if you didn't have a car registered in Georgia, you not, must not be a, a legitimate voter? Yeah, can you believe it's kind of no, no car, no vote? Now, look, you can't be required to buy a car in Georgia <laughs> to vote there, because that would be the biggest poll tax in U.S. history, which is unconstitutional. However... They can effectively do that by saying, here's what this wonderful, supposed wonderful Secretary of State said. If you don't have a car registered in Georgia, the counties can challenge new registration saying, we don't think this person lives here because they don't have a car registered. And by the way, one voter that was blocked that way was a voter in Savannah, my daughter. Now, my daughter, like many students, does not have a car. 
Who else doesn't have a car? The NAACP noted when we busted this thing. Uh, poor people. People who can't afford a car don't mm-hmm. have a car. So they're knocking out students, poor people, and by the way, a, a lot of um, inner-city uh, Atlanta people who use the public transport. So there's Atlanta urban voters, uh, poor people, and students. In other words, Democrats. So it was no Republican, no vote. Uh, when they want to, you know, but it's really no car, no vote. It's, this is the evil stuff that they do. And that's just the beginning. Things like, by the way, I went to Cobb County, half a million voters. Uh, Newt Gingrich's district, yet Joe Biden swept it. Swept Newt Gingrich's district, my mm. friends. Mm-hmm. And the response of the Republican burgers of the county was to close six of the 11 polling stations, all six that were in uh, African-American neighborhoods. This is the raw crap that they pull there, and it's done in many other states. California, by the way, if you read my book, How Trump Stole 2020, which is a warning, not a prediction, but, you know, it came 43,000 votes. It was closer than the 16 race. Um, only 43,000 votes stopped Trump from re-election. But uh, there's a chapter in there called California Reman about how Alex Padilla, our Secretary of State, or I should say now our wonderful new senator, um, basically uh, blocked the votes of nearly half a million people trying to vote for Bernie Sanders. You'll have to read that at gregtowns.com. It's called California Reman. Or Okay, and we have to let you go now. I know that your your okay. schedule is overwhelming you. I know, it's and- mad. It's <laughs> mad, but I really appreciate speaking to my fellow Californians. To let you know two things. There's skullduggery out there. Jim Crow is still alive and well, and you're not safe in California. Okay, and at gregpalace.com. Thank you so much. Onward. You guys are great. Yep. <laughs> Good luck. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Okay, so Steve, now we're going to go to part two, and Norman Solomon is going to tell us a little bit about some of the people that Biden is putting into his cabinet and his appointees, so mm-hmm. stay tuned for that. Yeah, news articles have been trickling out over the last, well, few months now uh, about cabinet appointees. So for the second half of today's program, we'll look at some of those uh, characters that are chosen by President-elect Biden for his cabinet. And the prospects are some of the issues that we discuss here on Corporations and Democracy, given those new uh, cabinet appointments. And the apartments so far, there's about, uh, I think about 33 of them so far. So we'll address half a dozen or so who Norman thinks are the, the key names and backgrounds to discuss. And then we'll see how many others we can also get to in the next uh, half hour. Okay, we'll be right back. We ain't asking you to love us. You may place yourself high above us. Mr. President, have pity on the working man.
Our guest for the second half is author and essayist Norman Solomon, who's also co-founder of RootsAction.org. Some listeners will remember him as a candidate for Congress right here in our district back in 2012. His recent essays appear at uh, ReadersSupportedNews.org and and also at uh, RootsAction.org. So... Let's have a look at the President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet choices and what they portend for the coming administration. Norman Solomon, welcome to Corporations and Democracy. Hi, hey, thanks. Hi, Steve. Hi, Annie. Hey, thank you so much for making time for our listeners. I know people are really interested in this. And I guess uh, there's a whole lot of uh, appointees that are online to go to work for Biden and the country, and we aren't going to be able to get through all of them. So we're going to pick some of the ones that you have information that you think are the most crucial for people. I, I know it's a mixed bag. We're really excited about a Native American congresswoman from New Mexico uh, becoming the Secretary of the Interior. I actually had Native American friends who burst into tears when that happened. It was extremely touching. And then on the opposite end, we have Mr. Monsanto heading up the Department of Agriculture. So thank you for being on with us to help us understand some of the stuff that's going on here. Did you want to start out with, like, the Secretary of State? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. And, you know, the topic, uh, the focus of corporations and democracy is very equivalent and important here because how can we achieve genuine democracy unless we can get rid of oligarchy, unless we can have not one dollar one vote in terms of political impact, but a really one person one vote who can help uh, make major decisions. And in terms of uh, Secretary of State, there is um, Anthony Blinken, who has been with Joe Biden for about 20 years plus. He was the staff director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2002 when Joe Biden held the gavel. And they um, had hearings, as people may remember, in the summer of 2002 about the idea of invading Iraq. And dissenters were not allowed. And it was really the combination of uh, Senator Biden and the uh, director of the committee, Antony Blinken, who made sure that only people who argued about how to invade Iraq and when to invade Iraq were even heard. Uh, 
And so, unfortunately, it's Mr. Blinken who has been nominated to be a Secretary of State. And I think it's notable that, along with Michelle Flournoy, another hawk, he was a co-founder of something called West End Execs. And they used the name West End because they meant West End of the White House and a little street of that name. And it was advisors for places like Boeing, uh, military contractors and other corporations, to help them make uh, sales to the government and to lobby the government. So this is somebody who the New York Times reported about a week ago, made $1.2 million in a couple of years doing that. So it's basically influence peddling. It's basically making money from the warfare state. And he's somebody who's heading up the diplomatic corps of the U.S. under the Biden administration. Wow. Okay. I think we're going to see a lot of this um, this interventionist tendencies in some of these appointees, unfortunately. Um, what about national intelligence, Averill Haynes? Well, it's really disgusting, frankly, that Averill Haynes has been nominated as the director of national intelligence. She's somebody who was a top official of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, some people uh, listening may recall uh, the film titled The Report, which dramatized the role, and believe it or not, our own Senator Dianne Feinstein is a hero of that film for good reasons, because for all of the ways that she has disappointed and angered people at the grassroots, uh, progressives, anti-war people, those who want protection of the environment, Dianne Feinstein did something very good, which was she was as the chair at that point, as I recall, of the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. She insisted that there be an independent report on the CIA's involvement in torture. This was during, uh, the battle was during the Obama administration. And long story short, the CIA didn't like that. And so they basically tapped into, intruded on, surveilled uh, the uh, data, the computers of that committee, of that investigation, the Senate, which is a violation of separation of powers and also just a, a flagrant power grab. And when Dan Feinstein got uh, wind of that, she pushed back, and uh, it was very important because it had to do with, this, with the central question, really, of whether the United States government is going to engage in torture and whether there's going to be accountability. Well, Averill Haynes really covered up for and ran interference for those who were engaged in torture at the CIA. So here she comes around, and uh, Joe Biden has nominated her uh, to be the director of central intelligence. She also had a major role in trying to justify the drone killings that the Obama administration uh, was engaged in. And, you know, you can apparently get lawyers and people with legal expertise to justify, supposedly justify just about anything. And she worked at it, and she wrote up memos just trying to justify how assassination by drone was A-OK. Well, this is going to be an amazing look here through all of these people, and I think we're going to run across some of this drone problem in some of the other appointees also. Um, but getting on to one of the other important positions that you have an interest in is uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. What can you tell us about her? Yes, well, she could be a lot worse. 
Um, and some people felt that her being appointed as Secretary of the Treasury was, you know, a good step and indicated there wouldn't be some uh, tremendous deficit hawk in there who's going to try to try to shred the domestic budget. But I think there's something that's indicative of a mentality that we're going to have to push against. I mean, as you as you mentioned, Andy, in terms of say Secretary of the Interior, there there have been some good appointments. Uh, Deb Haaland certainly is one. She's not across the board what we would call a strong progressive, but she has some very good policy positions. Uh, use of of native land. Uh, use of uh, I think it's one third of the of the land mass of the U.S. is owned by the federal government. So you know there is encouraging aspects, but when we uh, look at what's happening. Um, there's a very strong influx into the designated cabinet members. These are corporate people who believe in not only what they say, but most importantly what they do. They believe in the rotation in and out of government to profiteer through corporate power. And so they're on the carousel. They're in the revolving door. And what's stunning to me, as the New York Times reported a couple of weeks ago, is that Janet Yellen, when she was the chair of the Federal Reserve, um, she went ahead and left there and went ahead and made speeches to the big banks, to large corporations, and it's almost amazing to, to contemplate this. In a couple of years, she pulled in $7 million. <laughs> okay. I mean, can you imagine? You are a high government official in terms of financial regulations and uh, you know, macroeconomics and fiscal you know, monetary policy, in her case. And then she leaves the government, and she rakes in $7 million from giving speeches. This is just speaking fees. But the worst was yet to come. Then she is nominated to be Secretary of Treasury for a job where she will have enormous power over the tax enforcement and regulations that will affect the bottom line of the banks and other companies that just gave her $7 million. Oh. Yep, that's very circular. Uh, we have a phone call. Let's see what our caller has to say. Hi, you're on the air with Norm Solomon. Hi. Uh, uh, I... Uh I really would like to have some more reporting. Uh, it's a good program. It's just that uh, I'm I'm in a, a place where I'm really happy that the Democrats pulled off a, a couple of things and they got out of the hole in the Senate, and they they deserve major shout outs. So uh, Obama's administration and uh, now now Biden's. Hey. I'm all for it. We've been through hell on the other side. So <laughs> lighten up on, okay. on the dissing the folks that we're, we're, uh, we're going to, we're, you, you, we have working for us. Okay. Thank you. I'm so glad you called. I really appreciate, I really appreciate that call because it really brings to light a challenge that we have as people who care about this country. In 1992, Bill Clinton was elected president, and God knows we were so glad to be done with the Reagan-Bush era. And so Bill Clinton came in, and he had a honeymoon with people such as our caller, who clearly has 
I would say, good values and very deeply concerned about the future of our country. And when progressives would say about the incoming Bill Clinton administration, he's populating the cabinet with corporate power, the response was, lighten up. We're so glad to get rid of President George Herbert Walker Bush. Why don't you just pipe down? We're so (laughs) glad that the Democrats got in. So then Bill Clinton proceeded to push through Congress NAFTA. He proceeded later on to repeal Glass-Steagall so that the commercial and investment banks could run wild and rip people off and bring down, bring the economy at a certain point down to its knees. Bill Clinton implemented so-called welfare reform, which was an attack on single women and children and caused vast harm, including malnutrition and unemployment for those women uh, working at home and then being pushed out into the job market for often jobs that paid almost nothing. So when we look in retrospect, we say, well, when Bill Clinton came into office, people who said to lighten up, they actually were enabling corporate power not only to damage people's lives, but actually enabling Republicans to gain power. Because two years after Bill Clinton came in, and after he pushed through NAFTA with the help of people who said, oh, don't criticize him, lighten up, Republicans took over Congress in 1994. Mm -hmm. Because people were very upset at the grassroots that they were being harmed by measures like NAFTA because the new Democratic president, unfortunately, was helping Wall Street, not Main Street. So then fast forward to 2008. And by the way, from our congressional district, I was elected uh, to be an Obama delegate. It's not I had anything against Obama by any means. But when he came in office 12 years ago in early 2009, and there were criticisms about how he, again, was populating his cabinet with all these corporate people from these major investment firms and when those criticisms happened, we were told, hey, lighten up. We're so glad to get rid of George W. Bush and the Republicans, so just don't criticize, don't challenge this incoming new president, Obama. We're so pleased to have him in. Well, immediately, he bailed out the big banks. He chose not to bail out so many homeowners who had their house, and I'm sure this is true in, in the North Coast and all through our district and our area and certainly around the country. People's houses were underwater, and because of the corporatization of the Obama administration that had just come in, their houses sank, and there was enormous foreclosure. So as you can tell, you know, to sort of sum up, I'm not sympathetic to the idea that we should just be quiet and let Obama do his thing, let Clinton do his thing, or now let Joe Biden do his thing. Let me let me add to that that uh, that's the era when uh, literally hundreds of thousands of homes that were underwater were foreclosed upon and then bought by investors. And I think one of the big names escaped me for the moment, but he's back in the news in, recently. Uh, was it um, Mnuchin? Um, yes, yes. As having you know, so you know, hedge funds and private equity, you know, bought. The homes, and so the overall rate of home ownership in the country has taken a dive, and you know, and that just creates more poverty for the masses, and we're dealing with that today. I want to thank and you, Norman. Very, go ahead. So just to say real quickly that if people's concerns are to prevent the Republicans from regaining power, 
We've got to stop the Biden administration from corporatizing and ignoring the needs of working people. If working people's needs are ignored, that strengthens Republicans to come back. Yeah, and I want to thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank the caller because the caller is expressing what you hear all over the place. We've just been through a president that set maybe the lowest possible bar that there could be. And so people are like kind of panicked. Uh, and um, I, I appreciate having you on to give us some clarity about who we're really dealing with, which does not mean we want to go back to what we just had four years of. Um, oh, that's that's for sure, and I want to add that at RootsAction.org, we spent most of last year working to defeat Donald Trump. We put our staff into Arizona, into Michigan, into Wisconsin. Uh, we put an enormous amount of money uh, for us, several hundred thousand dollars, into defeating Trump in swing states. And we made a promise. We said this is a campaign to vote Trump out and then challenge Biden. And so now we're fulfilling the second part of that pledge. Okay, so um, here we go with the the Secretary of Agriculture nominee. Um, I'm sure that there's a lot of things to say about Tom Vilsack. Well, here we go. I mean, Tom Vilsack is somebody who earned his middle name, his nickname, uh, Mr. Monsanto. And I'm sure for (laughs) many of the listeners... um, there's real awareness of what Monsanto means. I mean, this is somebody who was a governor in Iowa and then for eight years uh, served as Secretary of Agriculture under Barack Obama, and he earned a reputation very early on for uh, being a very vehement ally for agribusiness, precisely the corporate sectors that are pushing out small farmers. And then Monsanto, of course, notorious uh, for its use of uh, its products, to uh, browbeat and essentially blackmail quite often uh, farmers as well as damaging the environment. And he also earned a reputation for being very insensitive to black farmers in particular. And there's some details about treatment of an African-American woman who was uh, a major official in Georgia and so forth. And it just, it's not to villainize him as an individual. It's to say that there are these forces in agribusiness that we have to push back against rather than say, oh, well, he's, got a, he's appointed by a president with a D after his name who's a Democrat, so then it's not a problem. It is a problem. The environment doesn't care if the chemicals that are uh, damaging our future on this planet are approved by a Democratic administration or a Republican administration just as somebody who is killed in a drone strike in another country, doesn't really care the party designation of the person in the Oval Office who enables those drone strikes to happen. Right. Uh, one new thing here is I think we, we are about to see the uh, first openly gay cabinet member. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, this is, uh, of course, we... we like to see breaking barriers of prejudice, uh, racial barriers, sexual orientation barriers. And so uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, he has been uh, really brave, not only uh, in his recent uh, campaign for president, but as a politician in Indiana, uh, somebody who has been very out as a gay person. And, you know, uh, if I was wearing a hat, I would tip my hat to him. That said, him being appointed to the cabinet is is pretty clearly a political payoff. 
people may remember that the Super Tuesday campaign mm-hmm. in March of last year was a turning point in, at that point, what, what was a battle between the two candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination who were the farthest ahead, uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And so right at that time, uh, Amy Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke uh, and Pete Buttigieg all, all decided at once they were going to endorse at the same time and rally for Joe Biden. And that turned out to be a turning point, as I remember, right after the South Carolina primary, where Joe Biden did very well. It was the first primary he won after doing abysmally in Iowa and New Hampshire. And so what do you say about that, where Buttigieg is made Secretary of Transportation, not someone who was particularly qualified for the job, but he gets a job in the cabinet after helping Biden get elected? Okay, thank. I appreciate all the kind of ins and outs you have here in making these evaluations. This is the tricky stuff, and I know you've been looking at it very closely and helping a lot of people figure out what the new terrain is going to look like. Um, okay, so White House Press Secretary, what can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, there's a crew of folks, and I don't have the names in front of me, of people who are going to do their public relations work. I know Simone Sanders uh, actually, ironically enough, and not related to Bernie Sanders, but she was the uh, press secretary for the first Bernie Sanders presidential campaign in 2016. In 2020, she defected to the Biden campaign, and so she's not got the top job, uh, but the next to top job of being press secretary of the White House for the Biden administration. Uh, and they've got some you know, very skillful people there, they're putting out the message that they're told to put out, and they're sort of the, the wrapper on the product. Uh, ultimately, the underlying question will be, what's the product? And on that score, I should mention that Roots Action has launched as the successor to our Vote Trump Out campaign, the No Honeymoon campaign, and people can sign up for alerts from there at nohoneymoon.org on the web. And on that page, we have very positive proposals that we're prioritizing along with many other progressive groups and individuals around the country. For instance, cancel student debt. And this is something that, because of Bernie Sanders and progressives around the country, Joe Biden has begun to give ground on. He's not gone all the way. But I think everybody listening knows students, or maybe some people listening are people, former students, who are just burdened by this colossal debt. And the necessity is that we build movement strength enough to get this student debt canceled so that no longer are people penalized for wanting gas, wanting an education. Um, And then, of course, the Green New Deal, absolutely crucial. Um, We need to end the wars that are um, destroying people in other countries and ripping off money that we need in our communities around the country. Um, we, we have opportunities for affirmative programs that can be put together, uh, programs uh, to implement drastic reforms for racial justice. Uh, we're going to need resources that are now being depleted through the military and through tax breaks for the wealthy and corporations. We have a program. We're not being only critical of what's wrong. 
we're fighting for what is essential to have a country that we can be proud of. Let me slip in a question then about the, uh, you mentioned Green New Deal, and so the, uh, the special envoy for climate is going to be John Kerry, and the White House climate czar, whatever that means, will be Gina McCarthy. So what uh, prospects do you give for progress on the Green New Deal? I think it's a, a mixed picture looking ahead, and as is the case so often, the strength of progressive movements and elected officials and constituents to really insist, I think that's going to be really pivotal. John Kerry has gotten very sort of mixed reviews, uh, and we have a situation where his, his, his history is, is sort of... Uh, you know, plus minus, mm-hmm. and you know, one doesn't want to question his sincerity, but one does want to look at his record and say, yeah, on the plus side, he helped negotiate the Iran nuclear deal. On the minus side, when he ran for president, he said if he had it to do all over again, he would have voted for the invasion of Iraq. It's sort of a mm-hmm. mixture there. One straw in the wind that has not been encouraging is in contrast to the people we've mentioned, other than the press secretary people um, who do need Senate confirmation, most of the people White House, most of the people in the White House do not uh, require uh, Senate confirmation. It will be very close at hand to President Biden, and that includes um, Cedric Richmond, who is a uh, soon-to-be former member of Congress, uh, and he is a huge recipient and ally of oil and gas money. I mean, it's just the amount of legalized corruption that he has been part of to oppose measures like the Green New Deal, to really put the brakes on efforts in Congress to bring about the push for really challenging the climate emergency. Cedric Richmond's one of the worst of the Democratic Party, and our new president appointed him to be liaison with community organizations around the country, a very high position at the White House, including, ironically, the Sunrise Movement. So here's a guy who's on the take from the oil and gas industry, and he's in charge of doing um, liaison work with groups like Sunrise Movement. So there's a battle going on, but I don't want to be all downbeat on it. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of positive signs, too, and it's all up for grabs. Mm -hmm. We have another call. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Yeah, um, I agree with your guest that... uh, nothing's really going to change as long as the corporations are in charge. The, uh, we're just going to be breeding more uh, right-wing populists because their, their issue, I think, is basically the same as it is of most progressives, is that they, they don't have a job, basically. But on the topic of today, I wanted to ask about the... Uh, it seems to me that the Biden administration is having to not only appoint all the cabinet secretaries and stuff as usual... But they're faced with this problem of a drastically hollowed-out executive branch across the board. There was an article on Political this morning about the gutted, unnerving state of the agency supposed to keep the U.S. safe and how it's just been hollowed out. And I imagine it's not just um, national security, but other portions of the government as well. And I was wondering what your guest had to say about the fact that the Bidens are going to be installing a a huge chunk of the federal government, not just the top level. Good point. Thank you so much. Take it on the air. 
Okay, Norman Solomon, what about the whole government? Yes, well, both of our callers have alluded to just the tremendous damage that the Trump administration has done, and that has included just an attitude and approach, a, a staffing strategy to, as he said, hollow out uh, not only the political appointees, but make it really hard for civil servants to function, and some of them have quit just in total disgust. So it is an enormous uh, job that is uh, facing the uh, Biden administration, because this was the worst presidency one could imagine. Certainly none was worse uh, than the Trump administration in our lifetimes or anybody's lifetimes in in historical context. Um, That said, though, we have to push for really putting in important positions and sub-cabinet and so forth, people in the Biden administration um, who will walk the walk, not just talk the talk, not just the easy stuff. And that's where, you know, our member of Congress, uh, Jared Huffman, and our senators, uh, uh, Padilla, will be coming in. And, of course, we we have uh, Feinstein, who on a good day will pay attention. And I think it's important (laughs) that we point out that someone like Neera Tandon, who has been nominated to be the director of the Office and Management and Budget, should be challenged. Um, Neera Tandon, you know, that is what has been called by the Washington Post the nerve center of the U.S. government, the Office of Management and Budget. It's not only budgeting, it's all sorts of uh, financial and organizing capacities for the executive branch and, and, uh, and the legislative branch in some ways to function. And here the selection of the director who does require Senate confirmation of the Office of Management and Budget is somebody who is bar none the most vehement and powerful and influential anti-progressive Democrat outside the government. Neera Tandon, as the executive director of the uh, of CAP, uh, Center for American Progress, she was uh, always a very close ally of John Podesta and the Clintons and so forth, and more than anyone else has been engaged in a multi-year propaganda war against Bernie Sanders, attacking him continually. And unfortunately, she's been nominated to be director of OMB. So to make matters worse, or at least more dramatic, who is the incoming chair of the Budget Committee? Bernie! (laughs) Bernie, which is wonderful. And it's really one of the bright spots, because he's going to fight, I believe, to cut the military budget so we can take care of health care, education, housing, and other needs in this country. Who's going to come before that committee for nomination? Well, it will be uh, someone who has declared propaganda war on him many years ago, near a tandem for OMB. So we'll see how that plays out. That will happen soon, will it not? Yes, I think it's going to need to happen soon, because even though there's been so much uproar about the attack on the Capitol and uh, then the impeachment, there's going to be an effort to fast-track a lot of these uh, nomination hearings and votes so people would get in place. I do want to say the latest caller used, I think, a very important phrase, right-wing populism, mm-hmm. because that is what has been propagated by uh, the demagogues of the Trump administration and also made easier by the failure of Democrats to put forward an affirmative, helpful program 
a new deal, uh, a Green New Deal, mm-hmm. some way, as somebody was saying a few minutes ago, to create jobs for people, to help people, mm-hmm. for, for uh, rural and urban areas to find that the government is actually helping them. The failure of Democrats to implement that, I'm including gonna, the I'm Obama gonna... administration, has really given only one doorway for populism, the right-wing demagogue doorway. We have mm-hmm. to create another okay. doorway, which right. is progressive populism. I have to interrupt you because we only have 20 seconds left. And, oh, sorry. Uh, so, no, I'm, I'm not sorry at, at all that you <laughs> went, went over. I'm sorry I don't have more time to ask you about the COVID response, um, but we are out of time. So thank you so much, Norm and Solomon, and people can find your website, I guess, if they... RootsAction.org.